Welcome to the Redeemer Church Odessa podcast. We are a gospel-centered, missional family that is rooted in biblical community and discipleship serving Odessa, Texas. Well, good morning. If we have not yet had a chance to meet or connect, uh, my name is Campbell Terry, I'm son of David and Kim Terry. Um, just before you th- didn't think that the Terry family could get any bigger, they bring a couple back from out of town. I'm just having to take up another row um, here. But I am so excited to be with you all today. Um, local Odessan coming back um, from Kansas City. It's good to get out of the snow and the ice for a little bit and not have to bundle up every day. Um, so that's been really nice getting to come back. Currently going to school um, there in Kansas City where I'm getting my Master's of Divinity at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, but super, super excited to be here with you all this morning and getting to open up God's Word with you all. If you haven't already had a chance to turn there, I would invite you to go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is where we're going to be spending the majority of our morning today. I'll be the first to admit that this is a new experience, um, getting to preach in front of so many people that saw me grow up, uh, that were there for the acne-covered years, like the awkward baby giraffe trying to fit into this body, holding back the voice cracks like every single minute. Um, so just a, little, just a little different being here back with all those people that saw me um, growing up. It's fun to come back and be reminded of those moments, even getting to catch up with Aaron just a little bit before the service, just thinking back on all the days of growing back and the good old days, and I guess I'm officially has-been, you know, just talking about the good old days back in high school. Um, But one of the things I'm very grateful of is that Roses and Taco Villa are still still right where they are, and I can still go and get number one combo and everything is still great. But one of the things I've been really appreciative of over the years, um, not only getting to come back and getting to see the things, but also of how my relationship with my parents has changed over the years. Don't get me wrong, there's always been love and affection in that relationship, but a lot changes when they literally had to, at one point, hold me and force food into my mouth, and now I'm scrapping together nickels and dimes and pennies trying to make um, ends meet. A lot changes through the years. But one of the things I'm probably the most grateful for is at some point in growing up, the wooden spoon just magically disappeared. I don't know if that's whenever I became six foot. I don't know if that's when I hit seventh grade or whenever I got a cell phone. It was more effective to take that. But at one point, the wooden spoon disappeared, and I'll be the first to admit I do not miss it one single bit. I won't ever forget that every single time that Dad would have to bring that out, he would tell me this, Campbell, I love you, and this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. And what I've always wanted to be able to say there in that moment, but never did, out of fear for what could possibly happen. But you all today get to hear, because now a few years have passed, and there's a few rows between me and my dad, is this. (laughs) Dad, that is really easy for you to say, but you're not the one that's been over right now. Um, Sincerely, I am really grateful for those moments, um, because without it, I probably would not be where I am today. But man, there, in that moment... And the pain that was about to come, it was really easy for five-year-old Campbell to ask those questions and to ask that question. Because to a five-year-old, that's all that I was seeing, was seeing the doom and the gloom that came when the wooden spoon was brought out. I missed everything else that my parents had done up to that point and continued to do that declared their love for me. And similarly today, as we dive into Malachi chapter 1, we are going to find God's people asking a similar question. God. Do you really love us? As we dive into the first few verses of Malachi, we're going to see and look at God's unchanging love for his people. 
we will see similar despite the continual sin and rebellion of, God, rebellion of Israel, God's people. His love has not wavered and it has not changed. Despite the external situation, God's love has remained constant and it is unchanging. In the book of Malachi, there are six disputes that end up taking place over the few short chapters here. God raises a claim against Israel and their sin against him. These claims come accompanied by a question on behalf of God's people of what authors and theologians call the disputes of Malachi. It's really beautifully written because it takes into consideration what the expected response of God's people is going to be. It's like going and asking someone a question, but you know them so well, you already know what the response is going to be. We see this continually as the claims are made against God's people going through these chapters in Malachi. But what we will see is that though God's love is disputed, here in these few short verses, God lovingly lays out his case for his unchanging and incredible love. God's love, though disputed by his people, we will see that by the end of our time today, that his love is undisputable. It is undeniable the great love that he has for his people. If you'll read with me in Malachi 1, 1 through 5, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste um, his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We pray with me. Father, I am incredibly grateful to be able to be here this morning and just to have an opportunity to be able to open up your word. And Father, it is my, my hope and my prayer as the word of, of Psalm 66 says, come and see what God has done. That Father, as we dive into these few verses this morning, and we're reminded of the faithfulness that you have shown and the incredible love in which you've shown the Father, that we would be encouraged this morning. Father, would you please give me the words to say this morning, and would you please speak through me? You can do more in just a matter of seconds than I could ever hope to do in thousands of years. And so, Father, I humbly ask this morning, would you please speak mightily? It's most in your gracious, loving name we pray. Amen. Malachi 1-2 says, I have loved you. God's love is unchanging. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? This is the first dispute that we find here within the book of Malachi. God is declaring his perfect, infinite, and unchanging love for his people. And his people reply, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? This is the reply that we find here. Now, part of what I get to do back at my home church in Kansas City every week is I get to teach our little kiddos. And it is great to see them here in the room this morning. It got me really excited knowing that they were going to be in here. And part of getting to teach the little kiddos from five years old all the way up through sixth grade is that every single one of them are continually asking questions. I get a little bit of taste of what life is probably like for you parents that at least every single kid four to five times per class asks, why? 
How come? And how is that possible? I mean, and I leave by the end of the day, and I am absolutely exhausted. I, I don't know how you parents do it, and I don't know how my parents did it with me, because I know I was the exact same way. Now, I understand that this is on a much smaller degree than what you parents in the room probably experience, but man, it is exhausting week in and week out. And very similarly here, we find a question responding to the statement that has been made. But unlike, I, unlike the questions that I get on a week in and week out basis from the kiddos that are full of honest sincerity, there's a lot that is loaded in this statement, in this reply, as Israel and God's people are responding here. It's full of, you know, it takes on a very, very different tone. See, Israel during this time is disgruntled and is growing in skepticism towards the Lord. Leading up to Malachi, there are several key events that are playing heavily into this exchange. The audience of this letter is the nation of Israel living in the second temple era, post-Babylonian conquering. You can read about th- this event leading up, um, leading up to this more in 2 Chronicles um, chapter 36, but verses 17 through 21 of this chapter give us, gives us the highlights and really what these people have experienced leading into Malachi being written. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 17, therefore he, meaning God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes. And all of these were brought into Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, the temple was the hotspot and the location in which sacrifices and worship take, took place during this day. Because Jesus has not yet come to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the mediator between God and his people. The people would have to go to the temple to worship, to have their sacrifices. This is the only way in which it was able to occur. So the temple is a massive, massive, massive deal in Jewish culture. But in 586 BC that we just read about in 2 Chronicles, the Babylonians came in and conquered Israel and destroyed its temple. And this devastated Israel. This would be the equivalent of the U.S. Capitol building in America being destroyed, where not only so much takes place as part of our government, but it's also a beacon of hope and freedom to Americans. It's absolutely devastated Israel. So the audience receiving this has rebuilt the temple, but it's nothing how it was before whenever Solomon first built it. On top of that, corruption has found its way into the temple. If you continue reading in Malachi, you'll see that the priests needed reforming, The ministry that was happening was actually leading people into sin, and the people were cheating God in their sacrifices. It's hard times for Israel, and it's hard times for his people. With Israel's disobedience ultimately leading to its demise and struggle, they are skeptical of the hope that was raised in Haggai and Zechariah for a revival of the Davidic dynasty, that prominence would once again come upon God and his people. That things would once again be great. They would be a great nation where things would once again be incredible. They are skeptical of this hope that has been raised. This is what is loaded in this rebuttal 
of asking God how he has loved them. Because all they see is destruction, difficult times, and in many ways a failed state. They in many ways are asking and thinking, what has changed? Does God still truly love us? Similar to me and my dad there in that moment asking, Dad, do you still love me? Like, do you really still love me? I'm bent over your knee right now. Like, do you still love me? Because all I see is this gloom and doom. It's the same thing with Israel. Because on the surface, it would seem like that God no longer loves his people, that he has departed from them. What is on their minds is all of this destruction and difficulty applies that God no longer loves his people. But this cannot be further from the truth. As Malachi continues laying out the case as to why God's love is unchanging and why he still loves his people, our passage shows us that God demonstrates his unchanging love for us because he chose us. God demonstrates his unchanging love for us because he chose us. In verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to desert jackals. God, in his declaration of his unchanging and faithful love, he gives a story that would have been familiar to the people receiving this letter, the story of Jacob and Esau. The story of Jacob and Esau and their relationship can be found between Genesis chapter 25 and 36, and we don't have time to get into all the details this morning, but I do want to give you just the gist. A crucial part of the story um, happens in Genesis 25 and 23 when the Bible says this, and the Lord said to her, Rebekah, two nations are, within, are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. From the birth of Jacob and Esau, two nations will be born. That of Edom, that we will talk about more here in just a second with Esau, and that of Israel. Now, Jacob and Esau have an interesting relationship as Jacob proceeds to get Esau to sell him his birthright by withholding food and by tricking his dad, Isaac, into giving him his rightful birthright and his inheritance. This takes sibling rivalry to a whole new level. Um, I'll be the first to testify with my brothers and my family. There's definitely a competitive nature, but it has never gotten to this degree um, that we see here in Genesis. But God, from the foundations of the world, has picked his blessing and his people to be continued by Jacob, not that of Esau. Regardless of his birth order or crummy character, God chooses Jacob. Theologian Paul House puts it well whenever he says, God's grace selects this terribly imperfect man, not because of merit on his part. Love dictates the decision. God is declaring his love for Israel by saying, do you not remember that I chose you? That of all the nations that we see popping up early in Genesis, do you not remember that I chose you? You are my chosen people, and I am your God. I was being reminded of this as I've been going back through early in Genesis, and it's just blown my mind the amount of people groups that we see popping up early in just the first few chapters. There's tons of nations present, yet God has picked Israel at the first case of Israel questioning, how have you loved us? God says, do you not know that I have chosen you, that he chose Israel and he has rejected others? 
Paul makes mention of this divine choosing in his letter to the Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 and 13, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I really wrestled with that, this idea for years of God choosing. How can a God that is so full of grace, so full of mercy, that leaves the 99 for the one, how can God choose as someone that was always picked last for anything other than basketball, just because I could stand there like this at the, <laughs> under the basket, this idea really hits home. Like, man, I didn't feel great there in those moments. And so how can God choose? But scripture is so beautiful. Paul writes, and he continues on in the next verses, almost anticipating this wrestling and struggling with this idea. Because on the surface, it does catch our eye. He continues on in chapter 9 by saying in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Notice what it says there at the end. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation and the Lord's choosing of his people is completely outside of our human efforts, and it is completely on God who shows mercy. This should make every single one of us who's been called into God's family incredibly grateful because we have been chosen. We have been picked and it is nothing of my own merit, of my own doing, but it's simply because of God who is full of grace and mercy and because of only the sin that I bring to the table. That is the only thing in which I have to offer. I have nothing to do with my own salvation. It is completely that of God. If you're sitting here today and you've given your life to Christ, the comfort of this promise is for you that God, before the foundations of the world, called you and called you in to bring you to himself. Back of the house, me and my family probably have two of the most insecure dogs on the planet. Anyone else have a couple of insecure dogs back home? I mean, one of my favorite parts of getting to come home is because those dogs can literally hear my car rolling up. That As soon as I've got all my bags and I'm coming through the door, I'm greeted with these two wet noses, like just sitting there shaking. I mean, you, you think they're about to break out in an absolute like seizure. I mean, they are just shaking and getting all over the place. And they're two of the most insecure dogs ever, because while I'm home, the second that I start showing either one of those dogs, Duke or Mojo, any amount of love or affection, the other one, you can just hear him, kind of comes around the corner, kind of locks eyes with you, and begins to do the trot, like just over you, never, like never dropping his lock with you, and then either of those dogs begin to sit, and they just look at you with those puppy dog eyes, and they're like, Campbell, do you not love me? Like, you're showing this other dog affection and care, but you're completely neglecting me. And I wish that my dogs would understand me what's going on. Our lives would be so much easier if dogs could understand the English. Like, that, that's the one thing wrong with the world is that dogs can't understand English. But 
What I wish that I could tell both of them is this. Do you not remember that I chose you to tell Duke? Out of all the dogs at PetSmart, of the 30, 40 dogs that they brought there that day, I chose you. Even though you'd lay down and refuse to walk around the store with me and want absolutely nothing to do with me, do you not remember that I chose you? And my little sweet mojo Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix and just tell him, do you not know that I picked you of all the dogs in your litter? You had a lot of brothers and sisters, yet I picked you. My love for them was displayed from the very beginning. The same is true with us and God. God demonstrates his unchanging love for us by choosing us. Despite the fact that we're unworthy, that we bring nothing to the table other than our sin, and will continually rebel against him, he sent his son to make a way to redeem sinners to himself. That is why the gospel is such good news, because it is beautiful and such a gracious gift to those of us that are so undeserving. Not only is God's unchanging love seen in how he calls his children, but also in his justice. God demonstrates his unchanging love for us because he is just. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 4, though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. So earlier we mentioned the story of Jacob and Esau. Um, the lineage, Jacob's lineage would end up becoming the nation of Israel, but Esau's descendants would become the nation of Edom. Again, this is a pretty intense sibling rivalry that just didn't last 11 chapters, what would actually end up lasting thousands and thousands of years. We see the nation of Edom continually popping up throughout the Old Testament, but perhaps none is greater than in their, in their alliance with the Babylonians and their conquering of Israel. Edom actually teamed up with the Babylonians to come in and wipe out the nation of Israel, teaming up to wipe out their little brother. As a result, Edom became a people group perpetually under the wrath of God. They were a wicked country because of their violent crimes against their Israelite brothers in league with the Babylonians in the invasion of Judah. What would end up happening um, just a few years before this would happen is that Edom would actually be completely wiped out by the last king of the Babylonian Empire. Now, some would call that extremely ironic by you getting completely wiped out by the people that you teamed up against with your little brother just not even 100 years prior. And there's definitely a place for that. I mean, come on. I mean, it is, I mean it's, just, it's extremely ironic. But more so, it is a carrying out of what God declared in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he, when he tells Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. What God spoke ultimately ended up becoming true. Today, the nation of Edom fails to exist. Scholars and theologians, as I was doing research, after that invasion by the last Babylonian king, you really don't see the nation of Edom pop up at all throughout the course of history. They literally fail to exist wiped from the face of the planet. The love of God is shown through his justice. How do we know that God's love for us is unchanged? Because he is just. Earlier I mentioned my dad and what he would tell me before he punished me. Campbell, I love you, and this hurts me more than it hurts you. His love was shown through his, through his punishment. If my dad 
really love me. He wouldn't have allowed to keep me to twisting off of what's going on. No, my dad's love was shown because he put an end to what is going on. See, God's love, see, God not only displays his love for Israel by wiping out their enemies from the face of the planet and out of the books of history, but also in his allowance of the events that are leading up to these verses being written and allowing the Babylonians to come in and completely take over. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1, all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of, book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon, listen, don't miss this, because of their breach of faith. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. God demonstrates his perfect, unchanging love in his perfect justice. His justice knows no bias. It is perfect. And wiping out his people's enemies from the face of the planet, but also dropping the hammer on his people because of the great love that he has for them. He says, I will not allow this sin to continue. I will not allow my name continue to be disgraced. I'm going to allow this to happen. His great, unchanging love is displayed in his justice. And God finishes this case for his unchanging love for his people in a declaration of what is to come in verse 5. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 5, your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the last verse within this particular dispute. And as God is finishing up showing his perfect, unchanging love for his people, he raises their sights for what is to come. How do we know that God's love is unchanging towards his people? Because he sent Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us because he sent Jesus. God would be entirely within his rights to say, no, you have screwed up. You have failed in this garden that I've given you, this perfect creation which knows no wrong. You brought sin in the world. You've continued to fail again and again and again and again and again. He would be entirely within his right to say, I don't have to do anything for you. But because of his great unchanging love towards us, the people that continually sin and mess up, he sent Jesus away to, to have a way for sinners to have a relationship with himself. As I was preparing and getting ready, I saw this verse and was immediately drawn and reminded of what God told Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And God tells Abram this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's so comforting being reminded that from the very beginning, God's intention was never for his glory to just be contained within the borders of Israel that it was always his intention for his goodness of himself to go out to the corners of the earth, 
so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue might have an opportunity to call upon him as their Lord and as their Savior. All the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. What an amazing thing that it was never God's intention just for his goodness to be contained, just that of Israel, but for all corners of the earth to be changed by his glory and by his infinite might. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 tells us, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is not that of a physical offspring, but that of a spiritual if you are in Christ, God is telling you that you are an heir to the promise that is mentioned here. The promise of blessing, personal relationship with God, getting to worship in his presence forever. This promise is for you. God is opening a way for any person from every tribe and nation and tongue to be able to come into his family. That promise is for you. God is wanting to raise Israel's sides of what is to come. How does he display his great, unchanging love towards us? By raising our sights, by these people's sights of what is to come, and his sending of Jesus. How do we know that God's love has not changed? Because he sent Jesus. What we just finished celebrating, Jesus coming from the perfection of heaven, leaving a throne for a manger to live a perfect life, and to die a horrible, gruesome death. Though he was God, not thinking of himself equally as God, humbling himself to the point of a servant to the death on a cross. This is how God displayed, and one of the many ways in which he displays his great, unchanging love for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For rebellious creation that have corrupted God's good creation. This is such a comforting verse. God loves sinners so much that he sent his one and only son. God putting on flesh and bone and stepping from the perfection of heaven onto the earth to dwell among us to live a perfect life. And though he was God, not considering himself as equal with God, coming in the form of a servant to die of a horrible, gruesome death for a people that he loved so dearly. This morning, you've probably heard me say over and over and over that the love of God for his children is unchanging. This is the promise and the comfort that we find here within this particular passage. This is the intended audience of these verses. But it doesn't change the fact that God has an incredible, unchanging love. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-4, through 4, that God desires all to come to know him, to call upon him as their Savior. And maybe for you this morning, this is the first time you've been hearing of this incredible unchanging love. 1 Timothy 1.15 also tells us that Christ came to save sinners. The people in whom caused all the chaos that we see in the world, this is who God sent his son to die for, to make a way to save them from a punishment of enduring an eternity, enduring his wrath. But friend, God has made a way to save you from this because of his great unchanging love. If you have questions about this, I know that myself and those in leadership here would love a chance to get to connect with you after service and get to tell you more. Because this God that we've talked about this morning wants nothing more than a relationship with you. He's displayed his great love before the foundations of the world, and there's nothing that God wants more than a relationship with you. So where do we go from here? As I was finishing up yesterday and spending some time in prayer thinking through this, the Lord brought a passage of mind, Psalms 66, specifically verse 5, 
Come and see what God has done. In the Old Testament, God's people would often create an altar, a physical remembrance of not only what God did there in that moment, but something that future generations could look at and see what God had done. And as I was talking with some friends before coming up here, I was really challenged telling them some of the things that God had done in my life. And one of the questions that my friend asked me was, have you written that down anywhere? <laughs> like, have you written down that answered prayer? Have you written down God moving in such an incredible way? And I'll be honest with you, I was really convicted there in the moment. I was like, no, like I, I, I haven't done that. I'm, I'm an awful journaler. I've tried it before. And they really challenged me. They're like, man, how much do you think that we forget that God has done for us? That we'll pray a prayer three, four years prior and that something amazing will happen. We'll just completely forget that it's an answered prayer of what God has done. The people receiving this letter, one of the ways that they, one of the reasons why they question God, how have you loved us, is they've completely forgot what God has done. In the same way that me as a small child was questioning, Dad, do you really love me? Because I had completely forgotten, man, there's food on the table, there's a roof over my head, there's new shoes on my feet. I'd forgotten everything my, my dad and my parents had did for me up to that moment. All I saw was the destruction. But now, 20 years later, getting to look back, it makes, it makes a lot more sense now. And so my encouragement would be for you, as it was really challenging for me a couple weeks ago, are you writing down the things that God has done in your life? Are you remembering what the Lord has done? Being able to return to those in moments of really, when you find yourself questioning, man, God, does God still, still truly love me? The one thing we're promised in this world is persecution. Life is tough. Life is tough because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin. And in those moments where, man, things aren't looking so great, how encouraging could it be to go back and return and see what the Lord has done? And so as we wrap up our time together this morning, God's love is unchanging. His love has not changed. And God demonstrates his unchanging love towards his people in his choosing, in his justice, and ultimately in his sending of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information or to give to this ministry, please visit RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.